Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Pearl, former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, Kaiser Permanente, a Stanford Medical and Business School professor, a Forbes contributor and best-selling author of the book Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. And I am Jeremy Kaur, host of the New Books in Medicine podcast. American healthcare is broken. Across the United States, there are over 200,000 patient deaths from medical error every year, growing physician burnout, outdated technology, and inconvenient and delayed care for patients. And on top of all of this, skyrocketing drug prices and increasingly unaffordable out-of-pocket patient expenses. For decades, our nation's political and medical leaders have talked about fixing the American healthcare system, and yet the problems are now greater than in the past. Every other industry that is inefficient and ineffective has experienced disruption. Healthcare will be no different. The question is whether the solutions will come from inside the healthcare system or be imposed on it. We'd like to invite you to listen to our new podcast, Fixing Healthcare with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Each episode will feature one of the top leaders and innovative thinkers in healthcare today. The show's format is simple. The guests will present a roadmap for fixing American healthcare's biggest problems. And from there, Jeremy and I will scrutinize the plan and help listeners separate fixes that have the potential to succeed from simply the hype. Our goal is that everyone from healthcare consumers to political and medical leaders will find value in the discussions on our show. You may not agree with the different solutions offered, but you will never again conclude that nothing can be done. We hope you will join us. Please subscribe via iTunes or your favorite podcast software. For more information, visit our website at www.fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Medicine. I am your host, Jeremy Kaur. Today, we will be talking to Thomas Morris. He is here today to, today to talk about his fascinating book, The Matter of the Heart, A History of the Heart in 11 Operations. Tom, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks very much. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Yes. Well, um, I um, started off my career working for the BBC, uh, for BBC Radio, uh, where I worked for 18 years. Um, I was a producer on BBC Radio 4, which is the uh, national speech network. And initially, I worked in arts programming, so programs um, about really everything from films, literature, plays, and um, everything else in the arts world. Um, I um, after a few years of doing that, I moved around a bit. I've been a documentary maker and I worked on a program called In Our Time with Melvin Bragg, which I produced for five years. And that's a program about the history of ideas in the broadest sense. Um, in fact, it's a it's quite a successful podcast as well. So it does everything from medieval history to particle physics. Um, it's a, it was a really interesting sort of second education, if you like, because um, you'd learn about um 
cutting edge chemistry and biology and astronomy as well as filling in little holes in your historical knowledge. Um, so I did that for five years. And then uh, three years ago, I uh, decided to leave the BBC and to start writing. And so uh, this book is the, the first product of that sort of post BBC life. So what drew you specifically to this subject matter and ultimately inspired you to write this book? Well, I've been interested in the subject of heart surgery for a good long time, about 15 years, if not longer. Um, I think the first moment I got interested in it was um, a documentary that was on BBC TV some years ago. And it followed one of the major figures in the book, a surgeon called Michael DeBakey, who um, was at, uh, uh, in Houston, uh, um, at uh, Methodist Hospital there. And he had an incredibly long career. Um, he started working as a surgeon in the 1940s. And this documentary was filmed in the 1990s when at the age of 89, he was still able to go into an operating theatre. Um, he flew to Russia even after that to advise on the heart surgery that Boris Yeltsin, then the president, um, underwent. So he had this incredibly uh, long career. And at the age of 89, uh, he had helped, he had, he was the co-inventor of a new type of um, a pump, an implantable blood pump um, that could be used to assist a failing heart. And I found this absolutely fascinating. I mean, the idea that a man who was almost 90 was still performing advanced mm -hmm. heart surgery. Um, and the fact that he'd had this incredible career, which had begun in the days before anybody called themselves a heart surgeon. I mean, there was no such discipline in uh, the 1940s when he was um, already operating as a kind of head, as, as a head of a chief of surgery. So he was there all the way through the emergence of the discipline and then its development into something that could routinely save lives. And that was the moment I got interested in it. And then much later, um, in fact, I, um, I wrote an article about him for one of the newspapers here some years later. Um, and when I looked into the middle period of his career, uh, the, of his career in particular, I discovered that there were just all these amazing stories um, about the people involved and what they did in order to create the discipline of heart surgery. And I found there wasn't actually the the book I wanted to read didn't exist. Um, so I thought there was a uh, an opportunity to write a book that was what I had been looking for when I first got interested in the subject, which is how I came to write it. Your book flows in a way that each chapter is a different, you know, major milestone in progress and improvement in heart surgery. Uh, the first milestone in your books takes place during World War II. In 1945, Dwight Harkin removed a piece of shrapnel from the beating heart of Leroy Rohrbach. Can you talk about this and uh, share its significance with our listeners? Yes, um, the that first operation is um, it's it's a it's slightly different from the others I've chosen in that um, it's not the significance of that particular operation that's important um, as the fact that it was one of a long series. Um, what ha mm -hmm. what happened um, was this: nobody thought that it was possible to operate on the heart until the eighteen nineties. For most of the nineteenth century, even long after surgeons had started to operate on the other organs of the body, they thought that the heart was just too difficult to operate on, partly because of where it is inside the body. Um, it's inside the rib cage. It's very difficult to get to it from a practical point of view, but also because it was thought to be uniquely fragile, that if you were to even touch it, there was a risk that it would stop beating. So um, 
it took a long time for surgeons to to come anywhere near it. And uh, the first operation on the heart took place in 1896. It was a German surgeon called Ludwig Rehn. And he um, did quite a simple operation. He stitched up uh, sutured a small stab wound uh, in the heart of uh, a man who'd been simply been stabbed. He was the third surgeon to attempt it, but the first to succeed. Um, and after that, uh, for at least um, 30 years of heart surgery, um, all the operations that took place were simply doing that. They were repairing injuries. And um, mm-hmm. there were some bullets taken out of hearts in the First World War. That's not a very well-known fact. In fact, a couple of them um, took place uh, using local anaesthetic. So you had a patient who was actually conscious while a surgeon was opening up their chest and taking out a bullet or a fragment of shrapnel. And wow. the big change happened. I mean, this was a, a basically a wartime occupation. You only really got any gunshot wounds in any large volumes during the First World War and then the Second World War. So when um, the Second World War began, there were a few surgeons who knew that it was possible to take bullets out of the heart or pieces of fragments of metal. And in 1944, um, the American military set up a massive field hospital in Gloucestershire in England. Um, And it was preparation for D-Day because they realized that as soon as there were Allied troops storming the beaches of of northern France, they would need advanced medical facilities to deal with all the casualties that were likely to come back. So they built this huge field hospital in Gloucestershire at a place called Stowell Park. And it was a specialist a chest surgery hospital, a thoracic um, facility. And Dwight Harkin was a young surgeon. He was in his early 30s. And he had a particular interest in thoracic surgery. He trained with uh, the leading chest surgeon in London, uh, a man called uh, Tudor Edwards. And he was appointed because he knew the country, but also had uh, the greatest expertise of anybody of, of his generation of American surgeons. And um in a an operating theatre that was it was basically a Nissan hut. It was um, uh, a small tin shack um, in in a field. Um, he operated on dozens and dozens of American soldiers who'd come back with chest wounds um, without a single death. Um, that is that is what is most incredible about that operation. None of his patients died. Um, I think it's about 144 patients he had. Um, A large number of those had shrapnel actually inside the cardiac chambers, and he saved them all without a single death. That's incredible. In in 1944, Alfred Blaylock gained celebrity status for himself and made Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore a pilgrimage destination for the parents suffering of uh, of children suffering from tetralogy of fallow, otherwise known as blue babies. Can you tell us about his work with these blue babies? Yes. And and this is a great um, collaboration, actually, between um, three people. Um, There was uh, it's it's one of the most common um, congenital disorders uh, of the heart. Uh, it's called tetralogy of fallow, as you said, and it's four. So the word tetralogy uh, is um, it's actually something a misnomer, but it's it's a it's four separate problems, and it's a complex condition, and it's it's also one of the most common problems that can go wrong um, uh, with the heart. Um, and these children were very, very unwell. Um, it's called blue baby syndrome because the blood going around their body has not been properly oxygenated. It's not 
only a small proportion of it has actually been through the lungs before it's pumped around the body. So their skin gets this kind of bluish tinge. And um, it, there's, a, it's a very, uh, there's a very high mortality rate in infancy. Um, and um, a lot of surgeons have been very keen to do something about it, but it was generally thought to be inoperable. And um, mm -hmm. Alfred Blaylock had a colleague called Helen Tausig, who was um, a great pediatric cardiologist. And she'd noticed um, something uh, in another condition that uh, babies sometimes have, uh, which is called a, um, a patent ductus, uh, which is where a, a hole between two uh, two of the major blood vessels just above the heart uh, allows blood to go between them. Um, and she realized that if there was some way of doing basically what you might think of as a bit of plumbing around the heart using a, a blood vessel to, to bypass part of the circulation, you might get more blood going back to the lungs and therefore more oxygenation and these babies might do a bit better. And she suggested it to Alfred Blaylock, who was receptive to the idea, but he then got the third person uh, involved and that was Vivian Thomas. Now, he had a very interesting um, background. He um, was a technician who'd worked with Blaylock in his previous job. And he'd originally wanted to be a doctor, uh, but he lost all his savings in the Great Depression. The bank he'd saved his, his savings in went bust. And um, uh, he was also black. Uh, he's an African-American. And at the previous hospital he'd been employed at, he, although he was a highly skilled lab technician, he was paid uh, as a janitor simply because he wasn't white. And he um, was told about this and he developed the operation. So it's now known uh, generally as the, uh, the uh, uh, it's now known generally as the, as the um, Blaylock-Tausig shunt or the Blaylock-Tausig operation. Um, but there's a good case for saying it should actually be called the Blaylock-Tausig-Thomas shunt. Um, and it involved simply, uh, well, not simply at all. Um, it, it was a very delicate operation because there were very small children they were operating on initially. And the first one took place in 1944 in Johns Hopkins. Um, it involved um, basically dissecting away a uh, small artery and then attaching it to one of the arteries that takes, takes blood up to the lungs. Uh, that's why it's called a shunt. It's because it shunts blood from one part of the circulation to the other. And it's the first time that any operation had been invented that could actually alleviate the symptoms. It wasn't a cure, but it's the first time that anybody had succeeded in alleviating the symptoms of tetralogy of fallow. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in the book that, it, you know, it, it, it made it a pilgrimage destination for, for many parents who had children suffering from that. They had thousands of patients. They called them tets. So the tetralogy patients were known to the, the staff as tets. But they had thousands besieging them. Uh, local newspapers would raise the funds to send the local tetralogy uh, baby to be operated on by Blaylock. Um, they had, you know, um, all the wards and corridors taken over by these children um, i can't remember the exact figure but they they operated on something like five thousand in the in the first four or five years it was a really incredible number of, of children and um he, eventually Blaylock went on a sort of mm -hmm. tour of europe to teach other surgeons the operation because in the first year they were overwhelmed with patients from all over america and then after that they started to get them from abroad as well um, and he was invited over by one of the leading surgeons in london and he did a sort of residency at uh, guy's hospital in here in london um, and he taught some surgeons how to do it here he also did the same in france um, and i believe in sweden um, 
so once that knowledge had escaped, then other surgeons could do it, and and it was it was less of a problem for him. But um, it, it, it was an interesting example, I think, of of how surgical knowledge spreads. So in 1952, an aortic aneurysm was considered to be fatal, like cancer. Yet in early 1953, Michael DeBaki made what was to date the greatest achievement in vascular surgery. Can you please talk about this for our listeners? Sure. Well, an aortic aneurysm is, um, the aorta is the largest artery in the body. It takes blood from the heart, from the left ventricle of the heart to essentially the rest of the body. Um, the aorta is a sort of, there's a, the aortic arch is a structure just above the, the heart. The, the artery curves around in this sort of graceful loop and then goes down sort of along the spine, um, right down past the kidneys and distributes blood to the lower half of the body. And an aneurysm is where you get a sort of ballooning of this artery, um, where there's a weakness in the wall of the vessel and, um, Blood, the blood pressure is, is at great pressure, uh, it, particularly in the upper part of the aorta. Um, it pushes this weakness out, and it, this is incredibly dangerous because um, it can, first of all, swell and enlarge, and then it can burst. And if it bursts, that's that's it because it pumps out huge amounts of blood, and uh, the patient will generally die within a matter of, of minutes or hours. And this is a, a big problem for a surgeon because there was really no effective way of, of treating it. Um, there, there are plenty of slightly horrible accounts of what used to happen to patients before surgery was possible. Um, the, the the aneurysmal sac, the, 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 the swelling, would sometimes kind of erode the ribs and appear through the front of the rib cage. And you'd have this sort of squashy mass at the front of the chest. And the patient and the doctors were just sadly waiting for it to burst. And what Tabaki did... Um, uh, he and Denton Cooley, who was his slightly younger colleague, um, they weren't, I don't think, the first to do any of this, but they were the first, again, to turn it into um, a routine and safe treatment. Um, they worked out, first of all, how to resect, that is to cut out the disease section of the blood vessel and and how to tie the ends together, as it were. But DeBakey in particular um, realized that it would be possible to make a graft to join the two ends together, an artificial section of blood vessel. And what he did was he went to um, a department store. He was trying to get some nylon, which he thought would be a good material for making these grafts. And they didn't have any in stock. But the woman behind the counter said, um, well, I've got this other material, which is new. We haven't had it before. It's called Datecron. And you might find that's as good. And he made the first grafts on his wife's sewing machine. He just cut out a strip of this material and then sewed the sides together and ended up with a kind of rough and ready tube. And then he sewed it in between the two cut ends of the artery. Um, so having cut out the aneurysm, he interposed this this graft in between. And it turns out the Dacron was incredibly good for this purpose because you'd get um, new, new cells, new tissue would be laid down on the inside. So what you'd effectively have have there as the scaffolding for a new section of blood vessel um, and that is the first time that anybody had created an artificial substitute for an artery and one that was effective in the long term so before 1953 one of the major obstacles preventing lengthy major heart surgery uh, was the issue of how to supply oxygen to the vital organs circulation has only or only has to be interrupted for two minutes before the onset of brain damage and six minutes before death uh, can you please tell us about the first successful use of uh, John Gibbons 
heart-lung machine and uh, some of the other uh, things that people were attempting to overcome this issue at the same time. Yes, I, I think this is one of the most fascinating and uh, it shows the most, the highest degree of ingenuity, I think, arguably in the history of heart surgery. So you, you stated the problem there. If you stop the heart because you want to operate on it, if you take it out of the circulation, you have only minutes before the organs start to die from lack of oxygen. So you need to find some way either of supplying them with oxygen, with blood, all the way through the operation, or you need to find a way to reduce their oxygen needs. And there were actually three successful um, solutions to this problem. Um, And I'll come to the heart-lung machine last. Um, The first successful method was hypothermia, and uh, several surgeons use this with great success. Um, The idea was that if you chill the body um, to quite a considerable um, degree, so uh, if you normal body temperature is about 37 degrees Celsius, and if you chill it to the low 20s, um, you greatly reduce the tissue's need for oxygen. Uh, which is why, incidentally, if um, somebody's been underwater in very cold water, they can survive for longer if the water was very cold than if it was if it was at body temperatures, because the the oxygen hunger of their tissues has been reduced by the temperature of the water. Mm-hmm. And several surgeons used this very successfully to perform heart surgery. It was a bit it was nerve shredding because you might get twelve minutes using hypothermia if you chilled the whole body. Um, you might get 12 minutes to operate on the heart, but you had no longer than that. So you had to start and finish the operation within those 12 minutes. Otherwise, your patient might start going into brain damage. Um, The other um, means of getting a patient uh, in open heart surgery uh, was called cross-circulation. And this was a great surgeon in Minnesota called Seawalton Elahai. Um, one of his colleagues suggested the idea to him. He was the only one brave enough or rash, some of his colleagues thought, to actually go through with it. And cross-circulation was the idea that if you're going to stop your patient's heart, they need blood circulating through their body somehow. But why not use another person to, uh, to circulate the blood for them? And what he was doing was surgery for congenital disorders on children. And he realized that if a parent had the same blood type as the child, you could simply hook up the parent circulation to the child's. So for the period of the operation, uh, you would have two patients anesthetized on tables side by side. You'd have the parent and then the child, and the parent's blood vessels would be attached to the child's. So the parent was effectively breathing and pumping blood for two people just for the duration of that operation. Now, that sounds horribly dangerous, and one... Um, uh, one of his colleagues said it was the only known operation with a potential 200% mortality rate. Um, but in fact, he was such a great surgeon that they had enormous success with it. Um, n- not a single donor was harmed. Um, not all the operations were successful, but there are still people alive today who, as children, were operated on using cross-circulation in the mid-1950s, which I think is incredible testament to what a great surgeon he was and how well through, how well he'd thought through the risks. Yeah, there's an absolutely fascinating photo of that in your book as well. It's incredible, isn't it? It's not often you see two patients in an operating theater lying side by side with with teams looking after both of them. Um, But these were kind of sideshows. I mean, um, hypothermia 
pure hypothermia on its own was only used for uh, uh, five or ten years at the most. It's still now incorporated into surgery, but as an adjunct to other techniques. Cross-circulation was only ever performed successfully by one surgeon. Um, it's thought that there were several other surgeons who gave it a go, but they quietly um, dropped all reference to it from their work because it wasn't nearly as successful as Lillehei had done it. But what actually won out in the end was the third possibility – which was using an entirely artificial circulation, the heart-lung machine, as we call it now. And John Gibbon was the first to make it work. He was not the only one working on the problem at the time. Um, But he was the first to take it seriously, was working on the idea from the 1930s. The only other person um, who was doing it at that period was in Russia, um, and his work did not become well-known here until the 1960s. Um, But Gibbon was working on cats initially from the 1930s onwards, and what he did was develop um, a pump, a very simple pump, which uh, simply sort of impaled blood through plastic tubing using... um, sort of fingers to sweep the blood through and the important bit was an artificial oxygenator which took the place of the lungs while the patient was in surgery and for that he used um, a sort of screen of wire mesh and the blood which had been removed from the patient's circulation was trickled down this wire mesh in an atmosphere of pure oxygen and this allowed gas exchange to take place. So carbon dioxide came out of the red blood cells as they trickled down the mesh and oxygen went, uh, was bound to the hemoglobin inside. So you would refresh the blood. It was refreshed with more oxygen, which could then be pumped straight into the patient. And that allowed him long enough to, to operate on patients. He only actually used it three times. Um, his first operation was a success. The, the, the child survived and did well. But then the next two died, and he was so devastated by this that he thought he really couldn't do it any, any anymore. Yeah, I thought that was a very fascinating part of the book, that, that after that he just kind of stepped away from it. Yes. The, the, the reasons for why he did that, I think, are, they're not entirely clear. People have differing opinions on it. Um, I mean, the easy interpretation, the, the, you know, the, the obvious interpretation is that he just couldn't take it when his patients died, and he, he lost two-thirds of his first three patients, you know, more than more than half had died. And, and that was just emotionally too much for him to take. Um, another possibility is simply that he thought he'd done his bit. And and having got it, the technology to the, the stage it was at, he decided he wanted to move on and do something else. Uh, in 1960, newspapers everywhere had the front page headline of heart valve replaced by rubber ball. Uh You said in your book, repairing or replacing heart valves was one of the most intractable uh, medical problems of the 20th century. Can you please tell us about this and Albert Starr's uh, use of the device designed by the retired engineer Lowell Edwards? Sure. Um, Heart valve disease uh, was one of the biggest killers um, 100 years ago. And the reason for this is that uh, there is a disease which is not well known in the developed world these days, but which uh, was pretty much ubiquitous um, until the early part of the 20th century, and that is, that is rheumatic fever. Um, rheumatic fever is, um, well, it's, it's, it's a bacterial infection. It's a strep, streptococcus infection, and it's a, it's a secondary, it's a complication, essentially. Um, the, um, it's an immune response to the original infection and it can cause um, all sorts of secondary effects one of which is um, endocarditis infection on the inside 
parts of the heart, but particularly the valves. Um, there were hundreds of thousands of people suffering with this, in certainly in London in the, in the latter part of the 19th century, early 20th century. So this was a major problem for doctors, um, and there was really nothing they could do. Um, there were a few attempts to operate on the heart valves uh, from the 1920s on. Um, Elliot Cutler, who's a surgeon from America, and also Henry Souter, who was a London surgeon, both made attempts to um, treat a condition called mitral stenosis, which is where the valve becomes um, constricted and so not enough blood is traveling through it. Then both of them tried to open up the valve opening with a, by inserting a, a knife or a scalpel it, it threw the side of the heart and just sort of notching the valve leaflets to let more blood flow through. But these attempts weren't terribly successful. And what a lot of surgeons really wanted was a replacement valve. Um, there was a lot of work done on this problem uh, from the 1940s onwards. Um, there were um, There were even sort of international conferences devoted to artificial heart valves, even before the first successful operation had taken place and actually one of these uh, one of these conferences took place in the late summer of 1960 uh in chicago uh or near chicago and albert Starr was there he was a young cardiac surgeon at the time and he'd been approached by an elderly engineer lowell edwards who you mentioned who um had had quite a successful career already i mean he was at retirement age he might have done nothing more with his life he'd already made quite a lot of money um He'd designed machines for stripping bark from logs. He'd also designed a fuel pump, which was used widely by the U.S. Air Force in the Second World War. And the royalties, the the, uh, the payments he got as a result of that invention alone were enough to fund his retirement quite comfortably. But he got obsessed with the idea of designing something that would be medically useful. And what he originally wanted to do was design an artificial heart. He thought it was a problem that he could maybe solve. And he went to see Starr, who was a good 30 years younger than him, and explained what he was thinking of doing. And Albert Starr said, well, it's a great idea, but I think it's very difficult because we don't even have a valve. Why don't we turn our attention to that instead? So the two of them got together and over the course of actually barely more than a couple of years, they had a, a successful prototype, which they tested in dogs. And eventually in 1960, they implanted it for the first time into a patient. And they got lucky. I mean, a lot of surgeons uh, who I've mentioned in the book uh, when they tried to do something for the first time, it went wrong. And they might do it half a dozen times mm -hmm. before they made it work. And in the case of the Star Edwards valve, the first implantation worked perfectly. Um, the patient lived for another decade. In fact, he only died because of a domestic accident, nothing to do with his heart at all. Um, and, and that was it. That was the artificial heart valve um, successfully launched. Uh, would you please tell us a little bit about the history, invention, and early use of both uh, defibrillators and pacemakers? Yes, that, well, these are both interesting um, inventions in that they were both conceived, constructed, and forgotten about more than once. They, they each have about three or four inventors. Mm -hmm. um, I think I should explain, um, I've been talking mainly so far about the mechanical properties of the heart. This is a a muscular organ that contracts it's in some ways it's like thinking about plumbing you know you've got pipes and a pump to propel the blood around the body but it's also an electrical organism uh, an electrical organ rather um, in that its control circuits if you like are uh, all 
actuated by electricity. Um, and some hearts don't have a structural problem with them, but the heartbeat, the rhythm of the heart has been disturbed one reason or another. And um, it was in the very early part of the 20th century um, that physicians realized that um, uh, that the electrical activity of the heart was, was important as well. That's what made the heart beat. The pacemaker... Um, first came into life in in uh, the early part of the 20th century in Australia, which was not known um, at the time as a centre of excellence for surgery. Um, it was a, um, a doctor called Mark Lidwell, and um, he um, had noticed that sometimes when he was treating patients, um, but this he was actually at the time he was working in an obstetrical in, in, in a, 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 an obstetric hospital, and um, sometimes children were born without a heartbeat, and he was desperate to find a way of restarting the heart because these children were. Uh, these were not children who were obviously about to die, but they were, if they were unlucky enough to be born, to be starved of oxygen and to be born without a heartbeat, there was nothing they could do for them. And he rigged up what was actually quite a simple apparatus, which just sent pulses of electricity through a needle. Um, and he attached the needle to, he just simply poked the needle into the heart muscle and these electrical impulses would start up the heart. But at some point, and it's not clear why, he just abandoned this research after a couple of years. His collaborator seems to have left the hospital he was working at, and then he was on his own and didn't really feel like pursuing it. It was then reinvented, this invention, um, a good 10 years later uh, in America by Albert Hyman. Um, and uh, it's not clear whether he actually knew of Lidwell's work, but he invented a very similar device, again, people really didn't take very much notice of it. They were rather sceptical. He wasn't helped by the fact that a lot of newspapers essentially thought that he was he was reviving people from the dead. So he used to get hate mail from um, clergymen and so on, um, suggesting that he was tampering with nature and the divine plan. Um, so he was regarded as a bit of a, uh, a bit of a maverick and again, ignored and his, his research basically pieced, in, pieced out into nothing. And then the idea of the pacemaker was only really um, thought of again uh, in the 1950s. And that's when uh, you can identify at least five or six people who have a good claim to be described as the inventor of the pacemaker. Uh, I'm not going to name them all because <laughs> there are just so many of them. Um, but you have various different sorts of pacemaker all being invented simultaneously in the 50s and the 60s. The first implantable uh, pacemaker came along in, in 1960. Um it was implanted in Sweden. Um, but yes, from 1960, these were small enough to be fully implanted in the human body with their own battery pack. And at that point, it became something that was not merely a piece of hospital equipment, but something that could actually give somebody who had a, a serious heart arrhythmia that was impairing their quality of life, gave them the ability to walk around again and live a normal life. In 1967... Renier Favolaro performed the first successful coronary artery bypass graft as a treatment for coronary heart disease. Can you please talk to us about this for a little bit? Yes. Uh, he wasn't actually the first, interestingly, although he is generally thought of as the pioneer who made it happen. And um, again, a bit like uh, the first, uh, the, the Stoll Park operation I mentioned, the Dwight Harkin, um, mm -hmm. he was the first person who did it consistently and in large numbers. Um, 
the coronary arteries are the blood's own heart supply. So when the heart pumps, every time it contracts, um, the first muscle, uh, the first tissue that, that benefits from each contraction is the heart's own muscle. And it has very large need for, for oxygen. It's, um, it takes, a, I think it's about a, th- um, I think it's about a third of the total oxygen circulated within each heartbeat goes straight back into the heart muscle and coronary artery disease is where the blood vessels become blocked by um, atheroma which is essentially a sort of fatty deposit and when that happens the areas of areas of heart muscle can be starved of oxygen and you get in the first instance you get angina um, it's called ischemia, uh, this starving the heart muscle of oxygen. Um, and angina, the chest pain associated with coronary artery disease. And then if it becomes severe enough and the blockage uh, is serious, then it can turn into a myocardial infarction, otherwise known as a heart attack. So that's the problem. Um, and it was about 30 years of development that led up to this operation in 1967. Um, the essential problem is the heart muscle isn't getting enough blood. So how do you solve that? Several solutions were reached, none of them as good as a bypass operation. Um, so one of them in the 1930s and two different um, surgeons were involved in this, one in here in London and, and uh, another in the States, um, you essentially attach part of another organ to the surface of the heart. So uh, there was one surgeon who would suture part of the lung onto the surface of the heart, and um, another used the omentum, which is a sort of apron of it's a sort of fatty membrane that sits in front of the abdominal organs. And these are both quite vascular structures. They've got a good blood supply. So the idea was that they would form new connections with the heart muscle, and that would slightly increase uh, the oxygenation of the heart tissue. And it worked probably, but only to a small degree. And then um, various other um, solutions were reached to the problem. Uh, One was that you could take a blood vessel from elsewhere in the chest and you just sort of bury it in the the muscle. Uh, And again, that brings new blood to the heart muscle, but not necessarily in the volumes you want. And what Favreloro did, he was an Argentinian who was then working in Cleveland, was it occurred to him that the best supply of blood in the body is the aorta. So what you needed to do was find some way of taking blood at that high pressure you find in the aorta straight into the coronary circulation. And the solution he hit on was using a length of vein from the patient's leg. It's called the saphenous vein. And you have to turn it, I was about to say turn it inside out, you have to reverse it because the veins have valves in them to stop reverse flow of blood so you have to kind of turn it backwards and then you attach it stitch it between aorta and the coronary circulation the coronary the coronary arteries and that just brings a new supply of high pressure blood straight from the aorta back towards the heart muscle and unlike the other operations that had been invented to to treat the condition it's a quick fix you get the results very quickly within hours with the older operations they were trying um, you would find that uh, you would actually get new blood vessels forming in the heart muscle. And this is a process that takes months. So all the time that this process is going on, the patient would still be um, affected and at risk of, of dying from a, a secondary heart attack. Now, I said he, he wasn't quite the first. In fact, there were several um, surgeons, I think three surgeons who got there before him. Uh, one was in Russia, 
uh, it was a surgeon called um, Kolosov, I think. Um, and another was in Houston, uh, Edward Garrett, who was a an assistant to Michael DeBakey, but he only did it as a sort of emergency measure and he didn't write it up until years afterwards. So nobody knew he'd done it. Um, but Favaloro was the, the person. He was working with one of the great, um, it was one of the, the Cleveland Clinic, it was not only one of the great surgical centers in the, in the U.S., it was also a great diagnostic center. There was a man there called Mason Soans who invented um, several new methods of visualizing the structures around the heart, looking at what was going on in the coronary arteries. And he was really in the right place at the right time, Favaloro, because he had these colleagues with, with incredible specialized expertise he could talk to about the problems. Um, and then he could go off into the operating theater and try his new procedure um, and he had hundreds of successful cases really before any other surgeons had accepted that the operation was a good one on on december 3rd 1967 a tragic car accident turned to medical miracle is now probably the most famous surgery in history uh, and christian bernard became the first surgeon to transplant a human heart can you please share this story with us? Yes. Um, heart transplantation is something that surgeons have been thinking about since, well, with any seriousness, probably since the beginning of the 1950s. Um, the idea had actually been first tried uh, as long ago as, well, the first decade of the 20th century um, by Alexis Carroll, who is a French emigre who worked in New York. Um, but he was such a visionary that nobody really took it as uh, a prediction of what would happen in the future, at least not in the, in the short term. Um, the research into transplantation um, didn't immediately focus on hearts. It was um, other organs were certainly easier to transplant, particularly kidneys. Um, the first successful kidney transplant took place in the, in the 1950s, performed by Joseph Murray, um, between identical twins. And the reason that detail is significant is that the biggest single handicap to transplanting an organ from one person to another, or in fact from one species into another, is nothing to do with the uh, technical difficulty of attaching uh, blood um, supply and and that sort of thing. It's to do with the rejection problem, the fact that an immune system will recognize a donor organ as foreign and then try to destroy it. And when Joseph Murray became the first to perform a kidney transplant, his patient and the donor were genetically identical as identical twins, so rejection wasn't a problem. The, uh, the kidney was um, essentially recognized as the patient's own tissue. Now, with um, hearts, it wasn't until the 19, early 1960s that um, surgeons really worked out that the technique was feasible. Um, and I think the person who was really responsible more than any other for working out how the technique could be achieved was Norman Shumway. Um, who really started transplantation um, almost as a sideline. He was um, he was doing experimental surgery on dogs, um, and they were using the heart lung machine, um, really practicing. And they had they hit upon the idea of um, taking the heart out of the body, keeping the animal on the heart lung machine, and then performing what they call desk surgery. So you take the heart out, you operate on it, and then put it back inside the dog. 
And um, while he and his collaborator, Richard Lower, were, were doing this, they, um, they realized that uh, it was actually quite difficult to put the heart back in unless they took a, a longer length of uh, blood vessel because then they had more um, more margin to work with, more, more material to sew. At that point, they realized it'd be easier if they had two dogs. Um, and that's how he got interested in the idea of taking a heart out of one body and putting it into another. And that became a major research project for him. Now, the interesting thing is that the person who's become famous for the first human heart transplant, Christian Barnard, didn't get interested in the subject until very much later. Um, we've just marked the 50th anniversary of this operation. It was uh, December 1967. Um, he really only got interested in the subject of transplantation a little more than a year before that, by which time Lower and Shumway had, they'd essentially worked out the details of the operation. They were trying to work out work on the problem of rejection, which was still pretty much insoluble as far as they were concerned. But they worked out the technical details. And Barnard coming into this problem really late, got interested. He did one kidney transplant, which was actually a success. The patient lived for, for over a decade afterwards, I think. But that was only his only transplant operation um, before the pioneering operation in, 19, in December 1967. So there were many people, uh, particularly in the surgical world, who felt that he'd leapt into this area to grab the glory from those who deserved it, including Shumway. In uh, in. 1982, William DeVries had performed the first successful artificial heart transplant with the Javerick 7, yet uh, issues, complications, and in illness, uh, due to all that, uh, the patient died a few months later. Uh, he had to endure professional and personal abuse, as well as tons of negative media. Cooley, who you mentioned earlier, was, was critical of him. Um, and in fact, you know, criticism of these these procedures is something that you know has been kind of you know in every chapter of the book almost um can you please uh, discuss this for us yes it's in a way it's that it's still the most emotive and controversial area um in heart surgery um i've i've had just thinking about uh, the artificial hearts are still with us um, they are not a mainstream therapy because they are incredibly expensive and they they are they don't offer a great quality of life. Um, but I've talked to surgeons who say, yeah, artificial hearts are here to stay. In fact, I talked to one who said I've got two patients on an artificial heart at the moment in this hospital. They're, you know, an acceptable therapy. They work. They save lives. And then I've talked to others who roll their eyes and say, they shouldn't be used. They're, you know, an abomination. Um, so that, although it's much less public than it used to be, that controversy rolls on in some degree. Um, the, the problem with the artificial hearts, um, firstly, it's a really, it's a really ferociously difficult engineering challenge to build a machine that replicates the functions of the human heart. Um, our hearts are. Um, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it necessarily, but they're beautifully engineered mechanisms. They're self-regulating. Um, they speed up when the body needs more oxygen and they slow down when it's not needed. Um, and they do all sorts of functions that, that a, uh, an advanced engineer would really struggle to build into an automated system. And most importantly, they can never go wrong. I mean, if they go wrong once, 
that's the end of the story, generally speaking. So you don't have the luxury of it as an engineer of thinking, well, one, one malfunction in five years isn't bad. I'll build it to that specification. Um, the other problem is that nobody has really um, succeeded in building a heart um, that is convenient. I mean, even the best now, um, they have a drive unit which is external to the body. So the implant is... Uh, pumping blood around the body but the motor powering that that pump uh, has to be carried outside the body now the, the best models these days are in a backpack so you can you do have some degree of mobility um but those old models in the early 1980s were terrible they were huge great uh, drive units that looked like a washing machine or something and the earliest patients had almost no mobility and very little quality of life um, and they were plagued with clinical complications. So the first three or four patients all had very long episodes um, where they would go back into surgery to have some part of the pump removed and replaced. Um, they were, in the words of um, um, Norman Shumway, in fact, the transplant pioneer, they were clot machines. Um, these pumps would throw out little clots all over the body. The patients would suffer regular strokes. It was a very unpleasant business. And it, it took a good... I would say 25 to 30 years for them to get significantly better in terms of quality of life uh, and reliability. Um, they are better now, I believe, um, but they are still a very controversial area. On June 12th, 1986, Ulrich Sigwart used the first ever stent uh, under very dramatic circumstances too, on a coronary artery uh, preventing emergency bypass surgery. Uh, can you please share this story with our listeners? Sure. And this is, um, in some ways, it's, it's, it's an alternative approach to the problem that René Favaloro was trying to deal with, which is to say it was also coronary artery disease. Um, and the backstory to this is that in the 1970s, um, uh, the, we, in the 1970s, we saw the um, the advent of um, balloon angioplasty, um, and that was a um, German cardiologist called Andreas Grunzig came up with that idea, based on um, this rather brilliant uh, American pioneer of the 1960s called Charles Dotter, and Charles Dotter uh, invented a technique called uh, transluminal um, angioplasty, uh, and his idea was essentially like using a um, uh, a wire brush or something to clean out a, uh, a drain. Um, he was dealing with patients who had clots typically in the large arteries in their legs. And he realized that if he could just push a catheter through these blockages, he could just clear a new channel and you could unblock the artery. So in patients who were close to losing their, their entire leg sometimes from um, gangrene because the blood flow was obstructed, he would push a catheter through the obstruction, restore blood flow, blood flow and they would be essentially cured now grunzig in the 1970s extended this this concept to the tiny blood vessels of the heart and by inserting a catheter through uh, a blood vessel in the in in the groin and then carefully advancing the catheter until it went up through um, the aorta and then into the coronary vessels he could inflate a tiny balloon and reopen um the, the the occluded vessel and that was great because it meant that after even after a heart attack um, you could restore blood flow to the affected area of heart muscle and you get an alleviation of symptoms and um, the only problem with this was that the uh, blood vessels tended to close up again 
you'd have uh, sudden obstruction or reocclusion. And um, what they needed was some sort of structure to keep the blood vessel open once it had been, um, once the, the balloon had done its work. And um, so what Sigvart did was to think, well, what, what can we use to keep this vessel open after the balloon has, has pushed it open? And he thought, well, actually, a sort of scaffold is what's needed. And he designed a thing that's based on, um, there's a type of toy called a Chinese finger trap, which is like a sort of contracting um, circular cylindrical scaffold. And it was designed in such a way that it could, it could just be snapped onto a balloon. Uh, just sort of inserted over the over this tiny balloon, which was then uh, pushed in through the blood vessels towards the heart. And then once it was inside the coronary vessels, you'd inflate the balloon and the stent would just snap into place. And then you have a perfectly open vessel with a stent surrounding it and protecting it, preventing further, further reclosure. The first time he implanted it, um, he was giving a course in angioplasty not stenting because that hadn't been done clinically yet. Well, it had, but only by one um, uh, one guy in France. Um, he was giving this course in angioplasty, and there were a lot of visiting doctors there. And um, in front of this audience of consultants, he um, had a, a middle-aged woman who was being given balloon angioplasty. Everything was going fine, and he did this this case uh, with the patient, um, and the doctors who were there to watch him at work went off to the canteen to have their lunch. And as he was talking to the patient after the procedure, Sigvart noticed that a kind of look of alarm went over her face and he realized immediately what had happened. The vessel he had opened had immediately reclosed. Um, it was, it was as if uh, it had just kind of collapsed upon itself and no blood was getting through to the heart muscle. So he got her straight back into the uh, into the treatment room, and he decided this time he would insert a stent. Um, so he, he he inserted this catheter this time with a stent rather than just a balloon, um, and pressed a button uh, at the end of this catheter, and the stent went in. And when his colleagues got back from their lunch in the canteen, he told them all about the, the drama which they'd missed. So I think they were all pretty annoyed. It was the, the first time he had been able to insert the stent device that he had invented. Yeah, I thought that was that was pretty fascinating. Uh, on, uh, on November 7th, 2005, at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, a stent was placed in a fetus with the heart the size of a grape while it was still in the uterus of the mother. It's 2017, and this is still mind-blowing to me, as are, all, as are all the other procedures we've discussed, but the precision this one would require in particular is, is crazy. Can you tell us a bit about this? Yes. This is um, for a condition uh, called hyperplastic left heart syndrome, and um, this is one of the most difficult conditions today still for um, physicians and surgeons to, to treat because essentially the heart is born without the left side, the most important side of the heart. It's kind of withered and small. Um, and what you end up with is a heart that's barely able to function. And uh, the, the kind of ins and outs of it are, are quite difficult to explain. <laughs> but the um, one of the ways in which 
um, children are affected by it is that um, it affects them during the womb as well. It can damage their lungs um, because of the blood pressures essentially that are going through um, their circulation, even in the womb, are, are, are radically different from what they would be uh, if they had a normal heart. Um, so what they did uh, in this case, it's only been done, I think, a, a few dozen times because this is a rare condition and not every child with hyperplastic left heart syndrome will benefit from it. But uh, it was preferable to um, create um, and maintain a communication between the left and the right sides of the heart. Um, now, this had been done before in the womb, uh, but this is the first time that um, they also inserted a stent, a, a sort of scaffolding to keep that hole open. There's a tendency for the hole to, to, to close up after surgery. Um, the condition is sometimes, but sadly not always, diagnosed um, when the child is in the second or third trimester, so um, in pregnancy. And it's only if it's diagnosed at that stage that you have a chance of, of preventing the lung damage that often occurs. So, yes, the procedure entailed um, essentially two patients in one because you have the mother who, who also needs to be looked after during surgery at an advanced stage of pregnancy as well. Um, you then have the unborn child. Um, so this operation, um, on the occasions it's been done, you need two teams, essentially, a team of anaesthetists, sorry, anesthesiologists, um, for both a patient and for the and for the fetus. And using a catheter, which um, is uh, fed in through the abdominal wall of the mother, and then after that, into the womb, and then very precisely through the chest of the fetus, and then once a guide wire has been put in through this kind of incredibly direct method, then a stent is 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 fed through the whole, firstly the, the mother's abdominal wall, then through her womb, and then into the child's chest, and then placed with breathtaking accuracy in the middle of the heart, which as you say, is about the size of a grape. That's that's insane. That's so crazy. Uh, you clearly did your homework while working on this book. Um, and it's an amazing book. I, I am curious, though, what do you see as, you know, the next big major breakthrough in heart surgery? Well, the interesting thing is that I don't see those breakthroughs and I can only go on what I've been told by the real experts here. Um, but those breakthroughs don't seem to be happening in surgery. Most of the surgeons I talk to uh, had very little to say when I said, what's the, the next big thing in heart surgery? They didn't really know. They were generally talking about quite small improvements to existing techniques. Now, the area that is really exciting at the moment is interventional cardiology. And around 40 years ago, effectively, the discipline split into two. And surgeons are the people who cut you open and perform open heart surgery. And this new discipline has, has emerged, the interventional cardiologists who do things using a catheter and a small incision in a vein. They're, they are a vein or an artery. They're doing uh, minimally, minimally invasive surgery. They're effectively surgeons, but they don't call themselves surgeons. And all the most exciting developments that people have told me about involve operating on heart valves or correcting congenital abnormalities using clever methods of getting instruments into the heart through 
a vein or an artery. So surgery without the sur- it's surgery without the surgeon, if you like. It's not a scalpel, but a, a sort of length of wire like a piece of spaghetti to get inside the heart and operate on it. Um, so, I mean, just to give you an example of that, one of the most recent developments has been valve replacements called uh, TAVI in this country and TA, TAVA, T-A-V-R in the US, um, which involves replacing the aortic valve, the valve just in, at the bottom of the aorta, uh, entirely uh, using a catheter. And more and more surgeons are doing valve replacement and repair operations. Sorry, I said surgeons, I meant cardiologists. Um, they're doing valve operations and valve replacements um, through a catheter and and it takes away the need for surgery entirely. Uh, This is very exciting. Interventional cardiologists are are, are really buzzing about what's happening next in their discipline. In a way, I think surgeons aren't. Well, Tom, I've taken up a lot of your time today. Uh, My final question for you is, what are you working on now? Um, I'm just writing a book which is coming out in um, the UK in October and in the US in November. It's called The Mystery of the Exploding Teeth. And uh, it's a a book about curiosities in medical history. So it's based on some of the amazing stories you find in old medical journals from... Well, really, the, the the beginning of medical journals, which is kind of in the seventeenth, late seventeenth, early eighteenth century, and between then about nineteen hundred, and so these are kind of weird and wonderful stories of um, amazing injuries and unlikely cures, and the the odd ways in which doctors um, used to treat their patients um, in the old days. Wow, that sounds really really interesting. When it's finished, you'll have to let me know. I, I'd love to read it and have you back on the show to talk about it. Sure, love to. I want to thank you again for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it, and it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you. Take care. Thank you very much. 